Lovely to see you this morning. Uh, as Bea mentioned, uh, it's only a year ago that I was one of the few people to survive uh, two life sentences uh, without parole in the federal system and maximum environments. So I come to you this morning in humility and grace to see your shining, gifted faces and your courageous vision of the future. And I honor that greatly. And I bow to you in that. Um, that all said, my dear friend Hamilton, you can cue this. Yes. <laughs> My dear friend Hamilton uh, just did a, a, a wonderful review of synthetic chemistry. I won't go into those sort of details with you. This would be more historical. Um, this photograph was taken on 46th Street, after which Hamilton and I walked north with uh, great uh, enjoyment uh, discussing chemistry and history and got so engrossed we walked all the way to... Uh, we're going to 59th. We walked all the way to 70th Street. <laughs> realized we'd made an error and started walking back, but got so similarly engrossed, we walked to 30th Street. <laughs> and then finally made it back to 59th after four hours. Uh, Hamilton said his legs ached for days, so... Um, yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, this is uh, going on behind me, isn't it? I can't see it on the monitor in the front. I'm sorry, the queue won't work. Could you uh, repair? Oh, there we are. Uh, here we are in San Francisco. Hamilton is discussing his favorite auditory psychedelic, uh, DIPT. Ah. A field 21 years ago in which I was driving a convoy uh, with arguably a very large LSD lab, a red light behind, sirens, uh, realizing this was not a routine traffic stop. I stopped the car, opened the door, bolted and ran. It was pitch, a pitch black night, November, Kansas, icy. Uh, D agents everywhere, suddenly, uh, running uh, rather like a marathon down icy streams, uh, branches tearing in my face, uh, eluding the bloodhounds, just like in the movies. Uh, finally realizing in a quiet space uh, the distant uh, DEA groups and realizing I had momentarily been free. Um, this one an all night the coldest night one could possibly imagine until a difficult dawn. At each dawn thereafter, one died, of course. A dawn and the humming on the horizon growing louder and louder of police helicopters searching with infrared downed scopes. And I was hiding in a cement tunnel so they couldn't see my warm body against the cold ground 
encircling, circling 250 house manhunt. Uh, news bulletins. And finally found a isolated, I'm sorry, isolated farmhouse in which to, to hide. But a dog discovered me and began barking. Calls went forward and suddenly there were great uh, fleets of uh, sheriffs chasing me through slushy fields, uh, guns drawn, uh, hopefully not firing. And suddenly I was on my knees, service revolver against my skull, and someone saying he was going to blow my brains out. And this is for synthesizing LSD. Well, that was sort of the end of a story of an era, but the story of the earlier era, you might find most interesting. It began, arguably, with a uh, young high school student in Kentucky. Oh, don't recognize this because it's extremely rare. A gift from the family, uh, Roni Stanley, uh, of uh, uh, Augustus Owsley, Stanley III, fondly known as Bear, in his high school years in Kentucky, the son of a Kentucky senator, who went west and become illuminated in the special years, 65, 66, and began uh, doing his syntheses of LSD, the great batches of blue cheer and the double dome 800 microgram white lightnings. Uh, yes, uh, here's Bear in the airport with um, a promising musician, oh, but he'll never go anywhere. and Bear building the wall of sound uh, for the Grateful Dead, and uh, the microphone system which failed yesterday, <laughs> but happily is working today. Uh, uh, dear Bear uh, passed away in Australia just a few years ago. Uh, his car slid off the road in Queensland, Australia, where he had lived uh, since his arrest, and two years at Terminal Island in uh, 72. Uh, Bear in his lifetime synthesized uh, 400 grams of LSD, about a million doses, and distributed in Northern California the first big wave, the first big deployment uh, distribution of LSD throughout Northern California, Southern California, New York, uh, and into Europe. Uh, and he, he is remembered most fondly. But Bear taught others. And among the other, oh, oh, for the women, it wasn't Bear's acid, it was a woman's acid. Melissa Cargill, an undergraduate at the University of California, uh, knew the organic chemistry. Uh, Bear might have been a little thin on the topic. Melissa instructed him in the Garbrecht method, uh, now an antique method, but uh, at that time, the process of choice. And, and Bear did very well with it, but it was Melissa that brought you the initial revolution, a woman. And Barrett taught the formidable Nikki Sand, uh, right, a college student at Brooklyn in anthropology. Uh, Nikki uh, paired up with Tim Scully, of course, to produce Orange Sunshine, Orange Barrels, uh, has 243 micrograms of LSD, quite a potent dose uh, in those days. But uh, we learned later to, to put those out at 
rather they learned later, <laughs> put those out at uh, about 80 micrograms. And Nicky, in his later years, <clears throat> with a great film made by Cosmo Fielding Mellon, now CEO of Beckley SciTech, a uh, fond recollection of, uh, of Nicky, who, who passed away just a few years ago uh, after the Oakland MAPS conference, in which he shed, said he was ready to shed his body, that it was time. And so we honor Nicky's memory. With Nicky and uh, Tim Scully, uh, still a good friend who wrote every week of the 20 years I was away, sent uh, every uh, document the government produced to me. A dear friend still living in uh, Mendocino County, uh, there with Nikki. Uh, this might be a blotter, it certainly should be. Vale et atke, hail and farewell. Nick Sand. But Nikki's teacher and mine, and perhaps the most one of the most influential people, was our beloved Sasha in his lab in uh, West Lafayette, California. Yes. I followed Sasha's work for 20 years since I was 20 at Mallinckrodt Labs at, at Harvard and finally had the courage to meet him and became a good friend in his lab many, many times. And I recall with Sasha and Anne, sometimes on Christmas, a, a group of people in their kitchen, which Anne could never keep straight, uh, the faces of them, the faces of those attending Sasha as he gesticulated and talked about chemistry and love, were like the faces of poor children around a Christmas tree, their first Christmas tree. Dear friends, Sasha would always advise young and upcoming researchers, students, get that PhD. And so, so many did. He was the, probably the most, easily the most courageous uh, individual of his era. And Alex's picture of, of them both, in great honor. At the same time of attending uh, Sasha and Ann, I, uh, after the 88 bust at Terminal Island, I did five years before the last bust, a quarter of my life, uh, has been spent incarcerated. Uh, uh, half my adult life is in a cage. Uh, I began the practice of uh, meditating in Buddhism and um, uh, entered Zen Center as a, as a monk, uh, facing the wall, practicing at long hours of sitting practice. Came in very handy in prison while these sirens were going on and flashbang grenades were going off and people were stabbing each other in endless beatings. This sort of practice was uh, helped one survive. From uh, the monastery, uh, most unusually, I found myself being accepted into the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. So I went from, uh, quiet, from prison the first uh, Caesar, to uh, several years of quiet meditation, to suddenly being in this environment, 
in which one was discussing uh, nuclear carrier escorts and how to redirect uh, missiles through windows in Waziristan, and also how to feed the children of India milk in the floodplains, and how to take care of refugee camps, the conservatives versus the liberals at the Kennedy School. Extraordinary classes, 600 students, half from all over the world. A uh, few Russian spies, even, that uh, were uncovered, <laughs> planted as students, and uh, then later uncovered upon their graduation. Uh, they were uh, deep adherents of the alumni community at that time. Of course, feeding information back to the Russians. Uh, the Kennedy School at night was often brightly lit, somewhat like CIA and Langley during world events. Everyone up late eating pizza. Uh, no shortage of CIA people at uh, K School. Ah. But during this time, according to the American government, the drumbeat went on, and some lab was producing 10 million doses a month, distributing it uh, across the United States and Europe and throughout the world. And indeed, it uh, was only one of several, perhaps as many as six, that were doing so at the time. But there's a little story behind this particular blotter. Most of the large acid labs are just producing large quantities of crystal, but occasional small batches of blotters were made for personal reasons. The personal reason behind this one, which is Escher's bond of union, was love. Uh, the individual who made it, I can't say who, uh, loved a woman in San Francisco, an abstract impressionist, and did this to demonstrate his feeling. And did this one to demonstrate his feeling. These issues went out in 1988. Uh, the woman, uh, deeply involved in mescaline in her later years, um, devolved into cocaineism, and we lost her. But things happen in the psychedelic world at these levels, often purely motivated by matters of the heart. Perhaps it's a good thing to remember. Ah. So at the Kennedy School is an unsung hero of the psychedelic era, and that would be Mark Kleiman, professor of criminal justice, and also here at NYU a dear friend who spoke to me monthly for 20 years. Um, Mark was also Rick, Rick Doblin's uh, mentor, as well as mine for Rick's PhD thesis, and was very much instrumental in the early formation of MAPS and the design of MAPS. Mark was a former policy expert for the Department of Justice and knew all the ins and outs of regulation and advised that uh, private donors be found for private research. Hence, we have this wonderful new revolution. A lot of it goes to, among us uh, here today, the unknown Mark Kleiman, an unsung hero. Mark passed away two years ago. Farewell, dear Mark. Well, under Mark Kleiman, I personally was charged with anticipating the next major drug of abuse, 
what's, what's coming down the road, what rough beast was coming toward our Bethlehem. And looking at the syntheses of numerous compounds, I realized that uh, an esoteric drug few people had heard of other than anesthesiologists at the time was uh, the now dreaded fentanyl, the ease of synthesis, the ubiquity of precursors, uh, occasional sporadic small labs uh, that would kill 10, 50, 100 people, a little outbreak in Moscow, I proposed to the UN uh, drug control program at the time and flew to Vienna that this, this would be a monster one day because someone without scruples would synthesize large quantities. Um, I thought in Russia, but it turned out to be Mexico and China. And particularly difficult was its uh, analog carfentanil, 4,000 times the potency. So the one suitcase synthesized by one individual in a remote lab in one setting would be the annual equivalent of the world's heroin supply for one year. That's a particularly dangerous situation. But presenting this uh, idea that fentanyl would be a problem one day in 1996 was considered speculative and uh, met with uh, little response. But fortunately, uh, recorded in journals and slides and presentations around Cambridge. I advised the UN that the important point would be to um, control the precursors, particularly NPP and ANPP. If these could be controlled, then uh, itinerant uh, rogue chemists, uh, usually poorly trained throughout the world, would uh, not be able to make this stuff. Uh, that went, uh, no one listened. That was 96. It was only in 2017 that they were made illegal and controlled worldwide. Ah. But while all this was going on, there was the relentless drumbeat of acid production throughout the world. And in the Kansas event, the DEA thought initially that that was a fentanyl lab in Kansas, and so dressed accordingly. This is not an actual photograph, because uh, DEA teams in investigating fentanyl and, and LSD labs wear full protective moon suits. Uh, you can't have even a piece of skin showing. In the 88 lab, uh, there were moon suit suited uh, agents uh, dismantling it, but uh, one morning, after working all night to do so, uh, one of the uh, agents <clears throat> took off his moon helmet and wiped his forehead with the back of his hand. Right, and uh, went off for a few days on quite, a, quite an experience. Um, nothing it could be resolved with a warm shower and a little Valium. Right. So, after the gun pointed at the back of my head, uh, summarily after two years of incarceration, the federal courtroom, the longest trial in Kansas history, 56 days, off mornings in leg chains, waist chains, a grueling situation, with a obdurate, very conservative jury, uh, we found out later that the jury foreman was actually a law school classmate of the prosecutor, 
but never told us he was an attorney. We thought he was a bank examiner. Nevertheless, uh, thoroughly convicted, two life sentences out parole, farewell to newborn children, to wife, to loved ones, to career, to freedom, to dignity, to the human contact, to touch. One notices when one isn't touched for a few weeks, the loss of what feels like an electrical charge in one's body. One becomes cold and isolated, and only human touch can bring that back. But even that was gone. I began to dress like this. Those uh, cuffs can be very cold and hard and painful. And just so you can't hit anybody with his hands, with, surrounded by multiple guards, they're cuffed to your waist. This is a leather belt, but the waist chains are usually chains. So there's a great clinking and clanking as one walks. And it's not just wrist against waist chains. There's chains for ankles that bring your legs close together. So one can only walk like this, just clanking. Two guards holding you, escorting you. And that leads you to long tunnels of razor wire going into federal penitentiaries, never to return again. As I walked through this razor wire, I thought, I'm in real trouble. Because the yard had not a blade of grass, not a tree, not a stream, not a river, no cats, no dogs, no children. There was a little laughter, but not a lot. A 30-foot wall, so you can't see anything. You can't see the sunsets or the sunrises. You could see the moon occasionally, but no stars because the searchlights were so bright. Ah, home. Cozy, that's a very broad window. The window I remember is only two bars wide. Notes the stainless steel toilet, very noisy but effective. These folks don't read, there's only two books on the shelf to the right or right, there's only clothing on the desk. But one could be in this space for months and months. Food put through a cuff port in the door. And that's how one lived. Meaningless, no job, no occupation, no hope, no direction. Escorted occasionally to showers during lockdowns, 15 minutes in the shower. I swore I would never eat an orange again. A chow hall. This is a, um, a staged picture. I can tell you why, because it's integrated. Um, even though prisons are integrated, um, the races for safety and because of belonging to various gangs tend to self-segregate uh, racially. So you'll have whites here, blacks here, Hispanics here, and Native Americans here. Everyone's very friendly, 
no problem at all, many friends in, in multiple races. But in the chow hall, people self-segregate because if a fight breaks out, uh, one goes with one's racial group often. I <clears throat> have been sitting at tables and became so inured to violence that sitting right next to me, uh, two men began fighting. You could hear the, the, the slug of, of fists against uh, body down on the floor like this. And I'm simply eating. Uh, and became so inured to violence after 15 or so years that I didn't stand up, shock, walk away. Uh, you can't break it up. Um, uh, it simply continued into, until guards broke it up. It was more of an annoyance than a shock. And that's how one became inured and immune to the sense of violence. Uh, killings were common. I saw a young man about to be released in a week, stabbed to death, 35 years old, over $300 worth of tobacco. Another young black man uh, kicked to death by a gang against a fence. You could see his jaw come off. Blood trails along the street from people being stabbed and bleeding. Um, great stars on the walls from people sharpening homemade knives against the cement. And what uh, helped throughout all this was Mark Lyman uh, would allow me to review his manuscripts. This is for Princeton Press, a drug policy book. And so I would, would uh, look for typos and any suggestions I could make technically. And that helped quite a bit. But then I was surrounded by the very people uh, Mark was describing, the incarceration Mark was describing. And, so I felt like uh, something of a spy <laughs> from uh, uh, the K school, uh, looking at the very topics we were writing about. Good morning, every morning. But I tried to keep abreast of advances in uh, science and medicine. We were not allowed any books on chemistry. So one uh, only heard through uh, uh, the occasional email, a small email terminal of any advances uh, quietly spoken about. And among the advances, or rather the regression that I noticed was this little beast. Enbaum, invented at the Free University of Berlin, a derivative of, Sasha, a derivative of Sasha's 2CB a killer drug like fentanyl, perhaps not as lethal, substituted for LSD because it's um, 20 micrograms, 80 micrograms effective. The boys would have loved it. The drug of choice in prison yards was, of course, heroin. And uh, now fentanyl, we expect to see a little more lethality. Ah, why ants? Because in the absence of living things, uh, men have a yearning for any pets. Tarantulas, for example, uh, collected from the desert. Uh, pigeons, mice on little cardboard running wheels. 
uh, are collected. But uh, my favorite, I think, and also mine, was uh, the ants. Um, men doing multiple life sentences tend to have thousand-yard stares. You can see in their eyes the hopelessness. And so they looked for little life forms. And in, in my yard, they looked for one ant colony. And so you would have men in their 50s, 60s, 70s, big, strong men with dead eyes standing around at sunset with bits of bread they had stolen from the chow hall in their pockets and rolled in little balls to feed the ants. It's rather like uh, the Hindu cult that worships ants. Occasional inmate would come along and mash out the ant colony, but the ants would come back, and people cherished their moments with the ants and would bring them orange peels and little apple peels and sugar treats and what have you. But that is the loss of the human spirit, the, the degradation, and yet the nobility the nobility of the courageous heart under the most oppressive conditions, always shining through. And that was beautiful to see, beautiful to see. In all those years, I saw only one man cry. Although in our hearts, we cried often. But what to do about that? How do you live under those conditions? You can't grab the fence, or you can, but a spotlight would shine in at night until you released it, stand back 15 feet. And you go home to this, actual cell. This is what I looked at, that light, that toilet, that bed, doing yoga and meditation, endlessly in reading the great works of mostly English literature in the 19th century. So one would look up at the killings and the blood. One would look down into the books and be in 19th century England, with horses and carriages and manners. And so I became a devoted reader <laughs> and began to write a little few lines and produced this work, 670 pages, of a description of an LSD trafficking group worldwide and their lifestyles and ways of living and values. And Dear Neshe, <clears throat> David O became quite a good friend. Uh, Neshe is here. And uh, discussed the, uh, the rose rather carefully and lovingly. The rising star and very articulate uh, in our community. Ah. But while watching one of the seven televisions that hang from the ceiling and never stopped in a hiatus from reading, I saw this picture. How are you doing on that? Mother and father, front seat, child, still conscious, in the back seat. This was 2015. And fentanyl 
began to raise its head and killed from being an unknown drug 100,000 people that year, 100,000 people the next year, and now worldwide with the same figures and proliferating. And there's very little we can do about it. The precursors controlled, but 30 new syntheses have popped up, and there's, frankly, I don't see any way to curtail it. It's rather frightening. But I remembered the work in Cambridge, and so did a few friends at Rand Corporation, the, the think tank in Santa Monica, the origins of um, thermonuclear uh, detente and, and thinking of mutually assured destruction, the early Rand work at its headquarters in Santa Monica. Rand became charged, their drug policy section became charged with how do we address this fentanyl problem? and wrote the definitive work on fentanyl, in which chapter three was based on the predictions in Cambridge in 96. The production of that work, the production of that work uh, was presented to the judge in my case, and even though I was released upon compassionate release, it probably was influential, the early prediction. But even more influential were a few friends. Uh, Carlo Rovelli, the great theoretical physicist, uh, the founder of, of, of modern quantum theory, uh, became a reader of the rose and became a friend and wrote a letter to the judge. And so did our own beloved Julie Holland. I, in a way, owe Julie my life. And dear Princessa in England came forward. These letters went to the judge. And I was released. Brother David Steindl Rost uh, read uh, from the Rose from, at 96 uh, from a priory in Salzburg and was instrumental as well. But in closing, I remember the men. All these men are serving life uh, without possibly a parole for nonviolent drug offenses. In the lower left, the young man is Ross Ulbrich, developer of Silk Road, the Bitcoin trading platform, serving life. His mother and I are in touch. You can find out about Ross by going to freeross.org. We walked the track for the last year. I was there, spoke daily as a gentle, loving soul, very meditative, brilliant, creative thinker, who will die there without your help, freeross.org. I'm going to fast forward through a few things because I'd like to read you a little story. People often ask, well, 
What happens if you take uh, five doses, 10 doses, 12 doses of, say, a, a non-lethal psychedelic? What do you see? Is there some ultimate revelation? And to, to answer that question, uh, I'll read a small section from The Rose of a, a massive, undoubtedly the largest human exposure ever encountered uh, in uh, a remote lab in northern Italy one night. Um, an individual, I can't say who, was uh, standing on a rack decanting 10 million doses at 3 in the morning, Gregorian chant playing, red light on, elixirs under argon, fires and votives burning, and the glass slipped and 10 million doses and a solvent that quickly penetrates skin, breathe through the individual skin. Um, he fell into his back, uh, screaming, because he thought he would have seizures or, or die that night. But we couldn't call an ambulance, of course, because that would mean uh, life in prison. <laughs> he thought he might survive. Uh, let me read to you that report to conclude. I somehow stood from the bath of LSD. I somehow stood praying, please God. I hung on the shower head with water over my face, carried by the river of life to the eternal mother ocean. He's tripping heavily now, deeply. The hiss of waves on beaches of worlds without end. And, and trembling, I carefully bathed, ritually cleansing, then managed to dress in an old work shirt and jeans, somehow moving about the rooms, all billowing wildly in the currents of mind. I refreshed the votives, lit incense, and gave thanks for my life which was passing. Yes, I crawl to a veranda on this summer night in northern Italy. The villa had an oceanic view, as we prefer for sights. Against the wall, resigned to fate, I sat with legs crossed, hands in prayer, gazing now and then at the spectacle before me. What did you see or experience? I saw, I saw the constant creation of the most perfect world imaginable by the mind of God. The luminous air of delicious gases like the perfume of lovers and goddesses, the rich earths made of gems, the fecund ground of being. I saw the union of all dualities, souls of heaven, galaxies of consciousness, and all life 
as mythic and sublime. How long did this last? Oh, it never went away. Even now I can see it, if I wish. You mean the effects were permanent? No. I mean the greatest gift is the natural mind, that which cannot be created or destroyed by any drug. But how can you see what you've described if not for the overdose? I saw the world as it truly is. God, or the ultimate consciousness, would not be so cruel as to make such glory dependent upon a substance. Put another way, nothing happened that night. <laughs> nothing happened. I was exposed to 10 million doses in seconds. The only human to witness or survive such an exposure. Beyond the initial changes, there was no effect whatsoever after the first few moments on the veranda and the whirlwind of the unknown. The night became crystal clear. I could hear night birds stirring and little freshets of cool wind. All was perfect, beautiful. The moon went bronze to white. As it rose, its rays dispersing through the thick forest. No patterning. The world was vast and still. The exposure was so extreme, it had no effect. Yes, by contrast, a milligram or a few hundred doses would have been overwhelming. I would have writhed, writhed in rebirths for many hours. I was saved at night by grace, alone. Then the ultimate vision was our own mundane, magical world. Yes. That's it. Perhaps the event was a reminder that we all already have that which we seek. Ultimate intelligence, ultimate beauty, universal peace, the final comprehension, ultimate love. What did you do? With humility and gratitude, I reflected on this great teaching of enlightenment as the moment one recalls the divinity of normal mind, knowing it for the first time. And I looked to the forest in the moonlight, not moving through the night as the earth turned to day. After final prayer, rested for a few hours, decontaminated the site with care, performed esoteric acts, ceremonial purification, smudge sticks, candles, incense, prayers, running, running kilometers each night, restoring physical energy, 
than with our formal traditions prepared the next batch. At this, he became quiet. We sat in meditation until the wind receded. The tranquil evening drifting in upon us like a black silk gown at the commencement of understanding. Thank you. Leonard, my friend, it's lovely to see you. Happy 420, a belated happy bicycle day to you. Yes, uh, thank you, Julian, and uh, thanks so much for the invitation, and uh, good, uh, good afternoon, everyone. What a wonderful conference. I can't see Julian, uh, nor can I see you, but a dear friend from Odessa, Kate Kifa, sent me some photographs of the Great Hall with trees. <laughs> a lovely afternoon it is. Well, good morning, Leonard, and thank you for being with us. It's obviously um, a sadness to us that you cannot be here in person. Um, I don't know whether or not you would like to speak a little bit about the circumstances uh, of the fact that you are unable to be with us here today. Well, I can do so very briefly, but I must do so uh, circumspectly, of course. Uh, um, I remain on uh, government supervision uh, indefinitely, perhaps as long as another two years. Um, uh, we are working on it. Um, presently, I'm unable to travel um, internationally or for that matter, uh, locally, <laughs> but uh, do hope to be uh, at breaking uh, next year uh, uh, in person. And I just want to thank uh, everyone at breaking. Uh, when I was in prison, uh, there was a, um, a little presentation by several friends in which they swept the audience with a cell phone so that I could uh, listen to you. And I heard your voices. This was several years ago. And buried in the tomb of prison at that time, it, it meant so very much. And I simply want to thank you all for that. So as you know, Leonard, we've, uh, we've redesignated the Great Hall here in the University of Exeter for the purposes of breaking convention as the Hoffman Hall. I wonder, given your experiences, if you have any amusing tales or stories of maybe bicycle days of times gone past or other tales you would like to regale us with in this time as we celebrate Bicycle Day and 420 in Hoffman's Hall. Well, thank you, Julian. Uh, I, I can speak of Albert uh, a little bit. Uh, I did have the pleasure of uh, meeting uh, in person Albert in uh, 1996 at the European Conference on Consciousness in, in Heidelberg and uh, spoke with him of my first tour of duty in prison. That was five years, uh, same uh, offense. Um, and uh, Sasha was there, Sasha Shogun and uh, David Nichols, and uh, we all had a lo lovely dinner. Uh, Albert, uh, <laughs> quite interestingly, uh, I saw him again at three in the morning, uh, in Heidelberg on the campus, um, in a suit at 90, over 90 years old, holding forth in, uh, German, 
surrounded by a flock of um, young people and green, some with green mohawks and other rather exotically dressed. And there was Albert, the conservative businessman in the middle of it uh, uh, at 3 a.m., uh, quite lovely. A friend just visited um, Albert's uh, home uh, where uh, Albert and Anita are buried um, near a little bench um, overlooking uh, Basel, a very peaceful place where they would go hold hands and meditate during the day. And I'm sure he would love to know of this conference, uh, uh, often in honor of his discovery. That would please him very, very much. That's a fantastic image of our relatively conservatively dressed scientist surrounded by those uh, more uh, adventurously attired individuals. Yes, uh, Albert, uh, actually, after Heidelberg uh, sent me an autographed copy of uh, Prob Problem Child, and uh, I kept it uh, on a shelf. And then during the uh, police raids, um, they seized it, and the book disappeared for years. Then, then during uh, my trial, which was the longest in state history, 56 days, um, the government was waving around Albert's, <laughs> Albert's book going, look, look. Uh, as though it was uh, some sort of evidence suggesting a world worldwide conspiracy. Of course, there's nothing like that. Of course, there is no worldwide psychedelic conspiracy. That much is clear. <laughs> so one of the things um, that I think was instrumental in your release, Leonard, was some of the work that you'd done in warning people about some of the other drugs that were coming into the market. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit about, about that and about what happened and about what your warnings were and what they might be. Yes, yeah, so th thank you, Joe. And of course, that's a much more serious topic. Um, uh, right, in 90, 1996, I was a graduate student at the Kennedy School uh, at Harvard, and my charter was to anticipate what would be the next major drug of abuse, uh, what would achieve uh, great social uh, distribution, what would be quite a problem. Uh, in those days, in 96, the, only the legacy compounds were on the street that would be heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine. Some would say LSD, although we might disagree on whether that was a problem. Um, that was it. There were no analogs. You didn't see uh, propionyl or acetyl LSD or uh, any, any variant sold on the Internet. The Internet had just emerged. Um, so we only had the, the common materials. Um, of course, it was obvious to um, those um, in pharmacology or chemistry that the future would be replete with the enormous number of analogs. And indeed, uh, in the next two years, we'll see thousands of uh, novel substances. But in those days, uh, there weren't any. And the question was, what would be next? What would be the next major drug that could cause problems? Uh, pharmacology doesn't stop. It's always evolution. So I combed, of course, all of the synthetic approaches of the legacy compounds. And in doing so, I uh, came across a then arcane uh, drug used only for um, um, uh, natal anesthesia called uh, fentanyl. 
uh, r- rarely used. In those days, no patches, uh, no widespread use of it whatsoever. Um, but no one had really heard of it uh, on the street. There had been a few small outbreaks um, in Boston and Moscow, and I explored those and talked to the people that had survived it, perhaps a hundred deaths. Um, because of the uh, potency of the compound and because it could be synthesized from ubiquitous precursors uh, obtainable for uh, uh, a very low cost uh, in tank car quantities, um, I felt that eventually, for someone that did not care about loss of life, um, a rogue underground figure with a cold heart, if you will, um, would synthesize uh, fentanyl and its um, its various derivatives, some of which are 4,000 times the potency of morphine. Uh, it was inevitable in my eyes. I began to lecture around Cambridge on this, but it was, seemed like science fiction in those days, and um, the concept was marginalized. Then in 2003, during trial, when asked what I did during the day, um, I went over the fentanyl prediction and made recommendations for um, prevention. Of course, there was an LSD trial. Uh, the government didn't want to hear about that at the time. Uh, in 2016, I'm, I'm present watching one of the televisions hanging from the ceiling on eternally. And there was uh, the first death, a wave of deaths, perhaps a thousand people. And I thought, oh, this is it. Because from 96 to 2015, the rate of opioid overdoses um, was about 3,000 a year in the United States, just pharmaceuticals. But in 2015-2016, there were 100,000 deaths, and that figure has continued each year annually, and there seems to be no end to it. Um, uh, 2019, uh, the Rand Corporation got hold of the original work um, uh, at Harvard and the predictions and recommendations and published the future of fentanyl and other synthetic opioids and relied upon uh, those predictions in chapter three. And so we attached a copy of that to uh, a motion for release uh, and it seemed to have been influential in obtaining compassionate release. And so I step into the world that, to me, now from a, a, a spare prison cell of steel and cement, I step into a world I see divided into the blessings and the horrors of, of, of substances. I see what's occurring in the psychedelic world, a situation I would have never believed. Uh, Sasha would have never anticipated um, and I see at the same time this uh, killer stalking the planet. Um, so the future for us, I think, is, is, is just as it is. And that division now will have wonderful new compounds derived from the uh, billions of dollars going into psychedelic research at this point. We're learning more now in the next two years than we've known in history. At the same time, we will see little beast uh, created, not just fentanyl, but all of its uh, variations, and perhaps uh, new materials uh, coming out of uh, AI drug development, uh, inadvertently creating uh, a serious uh, compound. 
I think the uh, blessings will outweigh the detriments, and we're in for a wonderful future. I'm heartened to hear you say that, my friend. I really am. I really am. And I'm very, very pleased that you're experiencing the unfolding of this psychedelic renaissance out of jail. And I wonder, I wonder about how the contact with these psychedelic substances may have perhaps uh, aided you in your ability to be in that prison of cement and steel for so long. I know that you have a background uh, as a meditator and practice in that regard, but I wonder, particularly speaking to you from the British Isles, where these things are still intensely criminalized, how the psychedelic experience might support us in those times of trouble, how it supported you. Well, those of us that are old enough uh, um, um, and can remember the 60s, can remember when we were um, ostracized, marginalized, and uh, heavily oppressed, uh, considered very fringe. Uh, but in our hearts, having gone through the transformative night of the soul in our respective ways, in our hearts, we knew we were right, no matter what anyone said. And so, uh, during uh, the periods of ex extreme incarceration, and that includes uh, searchlights, just like in the movies, and uh, 30-foot <laughs> walls, and razor wire, and stabbings and killings, and everything you can possibly imagine. In the midst of all that, while being treated as um, one of the most, uh, the worst uh, uh, people in the world, and surrounded by uh, some of them in real life. Uh, one really must search one's soul to have a sense of uh, dignity, a sense of self-respect, and in that, uh, maintain uh, compassion for others uh, inside out. Um, so those realizations, uh, that, that certainty of what we were doing was, was right, and the intention was to alleviate suffering and to expand consciousness and to open hearts, because we knew that was the intention, then that's unshakable. You know, when that goes, if that went, uh, there would be nothing to hold on to. Uh, I think, though, uh, in the end, um, uh, all of these changes are about the human heart, about the nature of love. And so, it came to, to be that when everything was stripped away, that means one's most important people in one's life, one's family, one's children, one's wife, one's friends, one's jobs, one's respect, one's position in the community, one's contact with the community, when all is stripped away, the only thing that remains that one can hold on to is uh, love itself, the love of the last remaining people that one can reach, that one cares for. And if that goes, then as it had for many men that I saw, then there, there is nothing to hold on to ever. So what 
what the the experiences of which we uh, share um, uh, did was um, help maintain a certain dignity um, and self-regard and therefore a certain strength and, and rising each day to continue the fight against insurmountable odds. Um, because of the nobility of our action, everyone present in this room, the nobility of our action uh, is, a, is a tremendous strength. And we'll see us through these next years, which I think will be quite happy. Thank you, Leonard. So um, in your biog that I just read, um, I inserted, I took the liberty of inserting the word celebrated in front of the Rose of Paracelsus on secrets and sacraments. Uh, and you emailed me briefly and said, oh, that's a redundant word. You can drop celebrated. And I'm pleased to have kept it in because it, because it is a celebrated work. I'd like to maybe talk a little bit more about, um, and I don't want to distress you, my friends, this is not my intention, but the, the origin of that work and what inspired you to write that in that place, in pencil, on paper. Why did you do it? Why did you send us that rose? Julian, uh, the writing of the rose was um, uh, a letter to uh, those that had the ears to hear or the eyes to see or read. It was um, an attempt, um, when totally crushed and uh, reviled by society and government uh, day to day to day, uh, it was an attempt to say, no, wait. There's something beautiful. There's something majestic in what we did and what we are doing. And so um, the rose was a type of um, poem, type of long poem, a song, to tell of a group of courageous souls that uh, gave their lives to, to share these blessings throughout the world against all odds, a story of their lives and their, uh, their loves and their personal practices and their values and um, extraordinary phenomena which surrounded them and their gentleness um, with the children of the world and with everyone and how it was necessary uh, for them to be occasionally duplicitous and covert and suffer through all those identities that were necessary to continue uh, the effort in those days <clears throat> before medicalization. So the writing of the rose was um, uh, a talk with uh, my children who were born when I went away and grew up while I was away and had very little contact with uh, their father. And I wrote it in part to tell them what it was all about, to try to show them 
the reasons uh, that we lived the lives that we did and the hopes that we had for the future of the world. And all there are many ways to help the world, that was the one that we chose. I wrote it as a gift because I had nothing, nothing. A few friends, um, remnants of my family, um, no dignity except what was inside, and a pencil and a memory of an extraordinary time and place and people and organizations, which still exist, and many in this room, perhaps the whole room. Uh, and so it was a gift, really, uh, to you, for it was all I had to give. Thank you for that gift. And thank you for that book. I jokingly sometimes say the psychedelic community is divided into two groups, those who have read The Rose of Paracelsus and those who are yet to read it. <laughs> and now, what writing now, Leonard? What other <laughs> things drive you forward in life? Having discovered this unexpected freedom after decades of entombment, what are you doing now? I wonder if you could share some of that with us now. Oh, that's that's very easy, Julian. I, I step into a world where, um, amazingly, uh, except for some conservative uh, <laughs> folks, I'm very warmly received uh, in the psychedelic community, and uh, you know, get lots of lots of hugs and uh, communications, uh, and uh, I'm able to raise my children now and see them and visit and, and my loved ones, and it's just an expanding celebration of. Uh, uh, each day is is more and more joy. Uh, uh, I have a good good uh, employment. I work with a venture firm in uh, New York, so I get to see all sorts of. Often we invest in psychedelics. I get to see all sorts of startups and talented founders and uh, ideas and protocols, and um, it's it's quite a wonderful development. Uh, um, uh, intellectually, my interests uh, continue uh, to a large part in, in psychedelics. Of course, I have to read all the patents and the papers and stay abreast of everything uh, coming online and follow everyone's line of thought, thinking, uh, from Robbins, Gerhard uh, Harris, to uh, uh, David Luke's, <laughs> to um, uh, David Nutt's, to uh, dear friends in the United Kingdom, Amanda's great work in Oxford, and um, Andy Roberts' new book coming out. Uh, I'm um, deeply into the promise of uh, artificial intelligence and drug development, um, not simply in psychedelics, although that can be extremely exciting, but uh, throughout uh, big pharma, all sorts of new medicines uh, this way come, and they're going to be enormously personalized and healing. I'm very excited about the CRISPR technology for genetic modification, for editing of the genome, the human genome. And I look look past perhaps in the next 20 years, um, uh, long after I'm gone, uh, to a period uh, post the post psychedelic era where genomics um, will eliminate diseases such as Huntington's and perhaps uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other, the array of neurodegenerative diseases that assault us. 
Uh, and it may go a step further. We may see uh, CRISPR editing for um, evolution of the human genome, of moving our species from Homo sapiens to the uh, to the next species, of becoming more adept with learning and memory, with uh, cognitive enhancement, or uh, balancing and strengthening uh, the human mind uh, through genetic uh, enhancement of performance. So I, th I think of these things as an exceptionally exciting time. We are all very blessed to live in this uh, decade, this this present and next decade, or perhaps the fastest evolutionary change in the history of the world, and we are we are seeing it now. That said, uh, I wouldn't dawdle with Chat GPT very often. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard, thank you very, very much. I think we have the opportunity for some questions from the audience. We have a, a roving mic, and Amy, who you saw on screen earlier on, one of our directors, is going to find out whether or not anyone has got a particular question to ask you. I think everyone's just awestruck, frankly. There are, are no, a few hands are emerging. Hi, uh, Leonard. Out of the yes, probably, can you hear me? Yeah, out yes, of the probably yes. many uh, learnings that you have not throughout your experience, which is uh, one particular that you would like to share that has been uh, a deep and inspiring not throughout uh, the, the past years. What teaching has been most inspiring in the past few years? Oh my! Well. Uh, other than the scientific uh, excitement, which I, which I just discussed, which is ongoing and, and certainly swirls about each day and just grows and grows and grows with information overload. Uh, the greatest teaching are the simplest things, uh, a matter of the heart, a matter of the perception. I'll walk down the street and um, see a mother with a pram and I will simply stop and watch at the beauty of it. And uh, uh, children playing. I, I didn't see children for 20 years. So I, uh, two boys wrestling in a pile of leaves <laughs> might stop me. Uh, uh, I like the animals, the dogs and cats. Uh, having not see, seen them for so long, I've now become uh, uh, quite affectionate to... Uh, to uh, to dogs and um, flowers everywhere, things we take for granted and we pass by in our busy days, uh, we shouldn't take for granted. They can be taken away in a flash, either through disability or at a gunpoint. Uh, the world is very fragile and more beautiful than we often consider. So I stop and look, and I smell the sweet air. I see the faces, the faces of the children, the women, the strong men. I take great pleasure in being so warmly received and just um, saying thank you. And just saying thank you. Thank you. I wonder if you could speak to 
some of the concerns around AI, that it doesn't understand compassion, it doesn't understand empathy. And in our development, and in particular in relation to drug development, how important do you see it as being that we not only enhance our memory and learning capacity, but we're also able to enhance our compassion and our empathy, and that those two things need to go hand in hand, otherwise handing everything over to something which doesn't have any empathy and compassion could be doomed today. Uh, you're absolutely correct. And uh, your statement resonates very deeply with me uh, because I think about uh, the future of cognitive enhancement and uh, uh, recently, I'm actually in discussions uh, with Brian, Brian uh, Earp uh, at Oxford, neuroethicist uh, at Oxford. Um, my concern is that um, drugs, uh, ph you know, pharmacological, uh, small molecules um, developed through medicinal chemistry or AI, um, that are eventually shown to have uh, an effect on uh, intelligence or cognitive abilities, um, uh, all well and good, but uh, I'm concerned about the potential side effects from such compounds. Um, they may have, of course, the militaries are, are quite interested in this. They're looking for compounds that are anti-fatigue for warfighters. They're also looking for cognitive enhancers. Uh, so, uh, the difficulty is um, that we must remember that we are human and um, the idea of enhancing altruism and compassion is paramount. We, we, we think we have that drug. That's why we're all here, because we've, we've experienced that. We think we have um, a stimulant or a healing compound for altruism presently. That's the nature of, of psychedelics. My concern is that uh, cognitive enhancers in the future uh, may shift personality in ways that are less than human, are um, insect-like or alien to humanity. And so the question is, um, uh, how do we avoid that? How do we uh, improve uh, mental function, cognitive abilities, without losing uh, the heart, which defines uh, our species? And of course, that may be the great ethical question of the next uh, few decades. But you're absolutely right. I hope that answers your question. Other questions? Hey, Leonard, it's Mark here. You oh. may recognize me from. Hi, Mark. How's grad school at Exeter? Loving it. Thank you. Thriving. Um, amazing community here and expanded now. Mark is a young theologian that just started his graduate program. He came through New Mexico recently and we had, uh, he was quite exciting, quite exciting young thinker. And uh, hi, Mark. Well, my, my ego is bloated. I don't know what to do now. But um, so, yeah, 
after our reading groups at Durham and Oxford that we did of your book, I've read your book three times. Um, and one thing that really strikes me about the book, that one of the kind of take-home messages, is that after these incredible Victorian-style trip reports that you write, there's always a moment where the characters, the protagonists, actively change those altered states into altered traits. They try and turn that spiritual experience into a, into a life of change, kind of the Ram Dassian idea. One of the parts of the book, as you know, that really moved me, brought me to tears, was the um, moment where they arrange for an adoption of an orphan who's being deeply abused by her family. But I'd like to ask perhaps a slightly more difficult question, and that regards the moments in the book where you, um, where the protagonists uh, help with very, very difficult, virulent addictions, such as addictions to cocaine, through tantric sexual practices. And the reason I ask that is in the face of recent investigative journalism about abuses of power in the space, um, both in the therapy context and in the more shamanic religious contexts. Have you received much criticism about that? How do you now see those that element of the book? Uh, has it been problematized? And um, yeah, I'm thinking especially about recent podcasts like Cover Story that have exposed kind of the dark side of that dynamic. Although in the book, I think it is... essentially a, a beautiful thing um, in, in the kind of, in the context of abuses of power. Have you, have you been reproached for that in any way? And how do you respond to those? And um, thank you very much for harboring this difficult question. It's asked in much love and joy. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you, Mark. I'm sure you'll do well. Do well I call with them sexorcisms, by the way. <laughs> I think you'll do well with the thesis. Um, Mark is referring to um, a chapter um, in the Rose called the Rhythm Section, in which, um, uh, yes, as he characterizes it, uh, tantric practices were used um, in an exotic way to um, help a young woman cocaine addict. Um, uh, the chapter is rather intense. Um, there was an, an assault on it uh, quite within a month after publication of the book uh, by um, uh, not Christian groups, uh, um, since I, I'm basically Christian and Buddhist, <laughs> so I, I would never um, infringe on, on those thought worlds, but um, by a group called the Church of Satan, <laughs> By Anton LaVey in San Francisco, um, um, there was a, a scathing um, uh, uh, short article uh, uh, by someone from uh, uh, that church. Um, but their, their complaint was not the tantric practices, uh, Mark, uh, but um, uh, their complaint was um, uh, during the healing ceremony, there were recitations of various... Um, um, figures, um, uh, Magoth, for example, uh, one of the, the princes of hell and um, in theology, uh, offset by the um, princes of heaven, uh, uh, Agenaeus, uh, um, 
for example. Uh, the Church of Satan got very excited about the use of, of, of the name uh, Magoth. Um, but we consider that uh, relatively fringe, and that, that's the only incident that ever occurred. Uh, what, a, what an interesting and exotic question to ask. Um, but along those lines, if you're talking about abuse in the psychedelic community uh, currently, for example, we've, we've had a number of incidents um, in uh, California involving uh, inappropriate uh, behavior uh, of a therapist, psychedelic therapist, uh, ketamine, I, I believe it was, um, um, a couple uh, with a client. Um, you know that um, in, in a normal uh, medical treatment, um, uh, the physician-client uh, relationship uh, is one of great trust, and sometimes things um, uh, get out of hand or inappropriate, and there, there are are controlling bodies and uh, licensing bodies in the states that um, that uh, uh, look over the client-therapist relationship and uh, assure that it is always professional and and uh, appropriate ethically. Um, with psychedelics, there are special compounds. Or you're not speaking about an antibiotic. You're not speaking about a conventional uh, psychiatric uh, talk therapy. You're speaking of substances that um, are heart-opening, that are somewhat uh, stimulating, that have a sensual component. And um, in these circumstances, um, I think that we'll see a greater incidence of um, inappropriate behavior. It's common um, um, among therapists, for example, to um, touch a patient uh, or hold their hand if they're undergoing uh, uh, serious uh, subjective uh, effects uh, or they're frightened or introspective or simply need human contact. But I think the line is drawn there with uh, a temporary hand-holding. But it's a slippery slope, and one must be extraordinarily careful. Uh, fortunately, uh, uh, so far, uh, the incidents are, are relatively rare. So I think that we should, um, the healing aspects are, are too promising and too profound uh, to be limited by um, um, a, a few a very limited incidents. They occur throughout medicine. Um, in general, I think that uh, ethical standards are heightened by these insights, and we know where to draw the line. And good luck, Mark, with your degree. Thank you, Leonard. I think we are reaching the end of this process. So I wonder if there's any uh, words that you would like to share with us now before we let you go to uh, breakfast, my friend. You may well have not eaten it being uh, Yes, that's quite all right. I've been up all night tossing and turning, anticipating this talk. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you and me both. You, know, you and me both. <laughs> it's six in the morning, uh, folks. It's dawn here in New Mexico. I'm on the high mesas. I can see 100 miles outside my window. Um, just uh, the parting thought is um, a feeling of gratitude. Feeling of gratitude for how far that we've come in the last 50 years, in the last five years, and how wonderful to be on this, this journey together. 
among so many friends. Because in the end, that's what it's all about. It's about each other and caring for each other. And so I simply uh, uh, say farewell with, with gratitude and with thanks to you all. <laughs>